0: Are cheap protection prices in the UK an illusion? Each provider fights to appear competitive on comparison sites, but one in four or more applicants now face extra premiums after underwriting. Is that fair? In this episode, I talk to Andrew Wibberley, an underwriting expert with a provider and reinsurance pedigree. We discuss whether we have sleepwalked into preferred lives underwriting, and how far we can take this before it becomes unreasonable. We debate using postcodes and whether that will shave more off the headline rate, but leave even more people open to paying higher premiums than they were expecting. That's all right here in episode 66 of the Marketing, Protection and Finance podcast.
1: Welcome, you're listening to the podcast for financial services professionals looking to share business ideas and inspiration in the world of marketing, protection and finance. For each episode, you can find the show notes and links to things we talked about at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash mpaf. So let's get on with the show and here's your host, Roger Edwards.
0: Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Empath Podcast. As always, Thank you. I appreciate you downloading the show, I appreciate you listening to the show and I appreciate your support and your feedback. If you have two minutes, please share the Empath Podcast with a friend or a colleague, perhaps by email or social media. Help me grow the audience for the show and I'll continue to bring you great guests offering their unique insights and ideas. Underwriting might seem like a dull subject, but this week's interview is a fascinating look at what's happening in the UK protection market right now. We are raising our clients expectations. They expect cheap rates but more and more face premium hikes after the underwriting process. Andrew Wibberley doesn't hold back as we discuss this massively important issue. A law graduate, Andrew has worked as an underwriter for Fortis now AIG and head of underwriting for Swiss Re He recently left Corporate Life to set up Alia Risk, a consultancy aiming to make the purchase of life insurance easier. So let's get into that chat with Andrew, right here on the Marketing, Protection and Finance podcast. So Andrew, welcome to the Empath podcast.
2: Hi Roger, how are you?
0: I'm doing really well Andrew. Tell me, where are you skyping me from today?
2: I am skyping you from sunny Chelmsford today. The fog has finally cleared and the sunshine is pouring in through the through the study window.
0: Andrew, well, today we've got a lot of things we want to talk about. We're going to talk about underwriting. We're going to talk about the situation we find ourselves in the UK protection market at the moment where one in four people who apply for protection potentially get rated, i.e. one in four people don't get the premium they thought before were going to pay. But before we get to that, Andrew, why not tell everyone who's listening to the podcast a little bit about yourself, where you came from, what your ambitions are, where you're going, and basically what makes Andrew Wibberley tick?
2: Wow, okay. So um, I'm, yeah, I'm Andrew Wibberley. I have had my own company that I'm director of for 17 whole days now congratulations um, thank you so cu- coming from a company where I'd been there five years and I was still the new boy um, th- this definitely all still feels very new to me so so before this I was at Swiss Free and before that at um, AIG as is now Fortis as was then through their launch so so people listening may know me from one of those those places I was head of underwriting at Swiss Free on various ABI committees and things like that so so that that's I guess the past and the knowledge and, and my core thing. About six months ago, I decided that I wanted to do something for myself, I wanted to um, step out of that world and, and try and, I guess, reconnect or, or get more directly involved with some of the people, some of the things that I've most enjoyed doing through my career. And those tend to be things where I'm more directly connected with with change, with customers and with doing things rather than kind of moving things around um, lots of things going on but that that's kind of I guess what makes me tick it's what made me originally become an underwriter was was partly getting to make lots of decisions about people each day and partly as well just nosiness into medical things about people so so some of that hopefully will be useful in my business and yeah really looking forward to getting stuck in
0: and your business is called Alia I believe
2: that's right. So it's um, alia Risk. And um, yeah, I guess I don't think I've been indulgent enough to write this actually anywhere as, as to why it's Aaliyah. So so Aaliyah is is my name, Andrew, my wife's name, Lottie, and my children's name, Evie and Alex, um, which spells Aaliyah. And then, then when I did the Google search to check, it didn't mean something hugely offensive in a foreign language. Um, <laughs> it, it turned out to mean risk in Italian, which which I think is a-
0: is Serendipity, a, I think, it, I, think exactly is the way it, of describing that.
2: <laughs> it, it did mean I couldn't um, hide away for three months coming up with a name like is traditional for most people coming up with companies, but absolutely. If, you, if,
0: you, you could probably have paid a brand consultant consultancy hundreds of thousands of pounds to come up with that and yet you know (laughs) I
2: think think my wife is slightly suspicious I may have chosen my second child's name just to make it fit that says more about our relationship than the name
0: you also do some work with the protection review don't you on their protection training around the UK
2: yeah absolutely so I guess uh, and again you know in, in in thinking about things that I've enjoyed doing then um that was something that I was lucky enough to get involved with when I was at Swiss Re, um, and yeah, with the likes of Kevin Carr, Roy McLaughlin, Pete Chadbourne and, and others. Um, I've been, I guess, the underwriter in a room of advisors, which the first couple of times you do it always gets your, your heart racing a little bit, but. To me, it's always been a really enjoyable experience to be able to explain some of what we do and hear some of the good and bad comments from people, um, which especially a reinsurer, you, you can quickly become detached from that. So, so I've always really enjoyed that. That side of, of of my role.
0: When you were out on the road with the protection review, doing that training, did you get the impression that there was a, a, a low level of understanding of the underwriting processes, or was it the typical cliched underwriting just gets in the way of doing business, or was there a genuine desire to make the whole process better and quicker so that both advisors and clients benefit from that?
2: I think um, I think some of all of those um, in in different individuals. I think there's a genuine frustration I would say is is the common theme amongst almost all with mm-hmm. the fact that I guess I guess to summarize the don't you know how hard it is to actually get to the point where someone's starting the process and then you guys come along and dot 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 yeah um, and and some people, you know, will absolutely understand <laughs> every logical thing that, that, you know, you will say that, well, we do this because of this and that and the other, and others won't. Uh, but I think it is just that, yeah, it comes from that frustration of, you know, in an uncertain world with uncertain commissions, uncertain, so much uncertainty and reasons not to do protection anyway, that when they actually get someone on the start line, why can't we make it easier? Why do we put so many hurdles from there to, to, to the end?
0: Th- this is an interesting um, topic to continue, Andrew, and we were going to talk about underwriting as our main topic today. And I guess as by way of introduction, an issue that's been bothering me as a marketing person with very strong ties to the protection market is this whole issue of customer expectations. Now, as we all know, in the protection market at the moment, we are extremely price competitive. In fact, we've been price competitive for a over a decade now, as long as I can remember. And we're always having to renegotiate our reassurance treaties to slice a little bit more off the rate or change our underwriting terms to slice a little bit more off the rate or do a deal here or do a deal there. But on the whole, even though everybody is striving to be within the top three on Iris and on iPipeline, because the belief is you have to be competitive in order to win business, my personal view at the moment is that price competition in the protection market in the UK is actually quite an illusion. And the reality is that once people apply for a product – They are very likely, in fact, one in four people, and and there are rumours to suggest that some companies it's more than one in four, it's maybe one in three, are actually being rated during the application process. And so what we're really doing is we're raising expectations with our customers and saying it's all about price, it's all about price apply for the cheapest, and even an advisor has to do quite a lot of work to justify why he wouldn't do that, and yet once the application process starts, as we know it can take a long time, people get disappointed when suddenly they find that the premium's going to go up by 50% or 100% or whatever it is. How did we get ourselves into this situation, and is it good for consumers?
2: Good questions. I think how we've got here, So, and to verify, we are here, um, and as you say, so, so the industry average at the moment, is one in four people don't get the terms they were offered yeah the vast majority of those are offered other terms a few are declined so we are we are here and that has moved tremendously over the last decade Mm -hmm. kind of reasons for that are twofold some is deteriorating health in in the nation mm-hmm. but the majority is the rules of the game by which we play so I guess putting my job's worth hat on my uh-huh. job as an underwriter is to make sure the person applying for insurance pays a fair premium for the risk that they present the company that I am underwriting for sure um, I I need to make sure I'm not charging anyone too much just you know um, for, for an unjustified reason and I think we do that at the moment I think the the additional ratings are linked to genuine evidence. But I think the whole journey pretty much sucks for most customers. Mm-hmm. And I think that is because of the, you know, because of companies being good at playing by the rules of the game. Yes. Um, but maybe not the spirit. And unfortunately those companies then tend to do very well. Um, so so if you're, you know, if you're a company looking to grow market share, then the obvious answer is Go and play that same game by those same rules. I think there are things coming through um, that will that will change that. I also think we're beginning to hit a point where you know, as, as you go lower and lower than one in four, you lose the concept of standard rates, ordinary rates altogether, yeah. which to be honest, probably doesn't exist in other forms of insurance anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you know, it may well be that this kind of era, and, and when I'm, you know, approaching retirement, I, I am handing over all of my knowledge that people look very strangely when I tell them about the concept of ordinary rates or standard rates altogether. So, so I think, yeah, I think what, I think the results that come out at the moment are fair in terms of the premiums that get charged for customers but it's incredibly inefficient the process and I guess feedback from IFAs understandably when you say one in four is it feels even worse to them and I think that's one of those jolts that comes from frontline feedback because those are the cases that take longer, those are the cases that they spend more time on both in terms of getting the information, doing the application with them, chasing evidence for, and then having to resell the policy to them. So actually on the front line, that one in four feels a lot worse, which isn't sustainable going forward, in my opinion.
0: No, it's like a double whammy, isn't it? You know, the majority of the public don't really appreciate the need for protection. They need to be convinced to take it out. And then if one in four or even one in three, and heaven forbid it ever gets as low in one in two, find that they actually have to pay more, that their expectations have not been met. You know, that's a bit of a bitter blow. And so you can understand why an IFA equally feels aggrieved when this happens. And especially if they've if they've had to handhold the client through a three to six month application process to the bargain. Um, it seems to me that the UK has effectively gone into preferred life underwriting, which is what they do in the United States of America, but effectively done it, under a sort of shroud of secrecy. I think if you go to America, they're pretty open with you. They say, right, there's this super preferred band here at the top where if your height, weight is in proportion, you don't drink, don't smoke and only eat healthy food, then you can get the best rate there is. And then there's about four or five, maybe even six to seven different categories. And everybody knows what those categories are up front. Yet in the UK, we still promote this cheapest is best. And then somebody applies and we apply this cloak and dagger algorithm that's happening in the background. And then one in four, one in three people find that they are being charged more. Personally, I feel that we should be a lot more open, perhaps like the Americans are. But on the the other side of the coin this is how our industry works and I don't see it changing anytime soon
2: yeah I was going mean, I'm determined to, to have a positive solution to the end of this answer although mm. I, I may I may have one more negative answer <laughs> so so I guess I, i've I've sat with almost most companies in the market saying well what does preferred underwriting in the UK look like Mm-hmm. Um, So I don't think it's breaching any confidence because it's a valid thing to kind of hypothesize about. Mm -hmm. And and almost the problem is, and, and where the Americans somehow are, is that their standard rates is is the plus fifty yeah. that, that we charge? Yeah. Um, so you know, for, for for a new company entering the market to to have that more possibly transparent approach and say, actually, well, let's pitch it in between. Let's say our standard rates is, is twenty five extra on what other people would. But hey, great news! If you're really healthy, if you eat the right things, and if you and if all your other health is okay, we'll take twenty five or even thirty off. You go onto your whichever exchange, iris, whatever, as an IFA. And they're always going to be 10th on your comparison list. Yes. So, so so what's the incentive there, even if there's a possibility that, that some of those lives end up cheaper, mm-hmm. um, which which I think is, um, I don't want this to be an in defense of underwriters, but in defense of underwriters, um, <laughs> what we do in those two models really doesn't change. No. It, it is the kind of, dare I say it, the sales and marketing and all that stuff around it that goes, okay, where do you start? I. I I think the technology makes a real difference. Yes. I also think where underwriting can help is, is is in the speed of underwriting, and as that gets quicker, then I think you potentially have a situation where you can answer a few questions and then give a an expect- set an expectation, and that expectation becomes a lot more real. So you know, in simple terms, that could be that we always take BMI uh, height and weight. Before giving an indication or, mm-hmm. or so on, you know, which, which given technology and things like that now that the kind of excuses not to do that becomes less and less. And obviously there, there are various you know, solutions out there now, all from the all singing, all dancing, underwrite me to, to kind of other things along the way that attempt to do that. So I, I think we'll see more of that coming in, which hopefully will help demystify some of what we do.
0: And do you think underwrite me is the right solution to this? Uh, we've talked about underwrite me on the podcast before. My impression of underwrite me is it's a good solution but in reality, it's a bit sad that the industry's got itself into a situation where it needs an independent company to come along and build something to plug onto the front end to effectively solve a problem that we've created for ourselves.
2: Yeah, I think um, I think underwrite means a solution to, to a a problem. I don't think it's going to single-handedly save the market, which (laughs) I don't think they're guilty of saying that. No. Uh, But but there is that danger at the moment. You know, it's great that underwriting is being talked about and thought of in a positive way. But, you know, when when you look at the nuts and bolts of what underwriting is doing, I guess it's saying The problem is people have uncertainty about the final rate. I think a lot of that uncertainty actually comes more from a compliance perspective Mm -hmm. and an admin perspective about having to do all of those things. That might mean that distributors don't want to get involved. Uh, That's the main pitch, I think, that goes, this is gonna grow the market. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess I see that, therefore, as being a solution to those problems. I think there's lots of other solutions that might help equally or more mean more people on the street actually, you know, c- come and buy insurance or are interested in buying insurance. You know, the, I guess the obvious downside to Underwrite Me day one is that it is a it is a long application form, it's a long application process. Um, exactly as you have for motor and home insurance when you have a very similar proposition to Underwrite Me. Yeah. Um, it, it has to ask every question that everyone who's on that might ask um, so that's fine for some customers sales journey sales models but for others where you're looking to have a more streamlined approach you know very different approaches I think would, would be right um, but heck, it's it's great to see, as you say, it's great to see something happening. And frankly, when the biggest innovation kind of in the last decade has been asking questions over the phone rather than asking them on a bit of paper, <laughs> um, this does feel like genuine a genuine step forward.
0: Yeah, of course, Underwrite Me is one solution to this. Personally, I would like to see a product launched where there was a much reduced set of questions. Um, now, of course, that would mean that the price is going to go up because if there are fewer under writing questions given what we can ask now we can ask 32 questions so if we only ask five questions the price is going to go up and if the price goes up and we drop down off iris night pipeline and therefore it being Next to impossible to actually recommend that product, so we're almost in a bit of a catch twenty two situation, so we really do have to make the best of the scenario that we have now and to try to make it more consumer friendly and engage consumers better and 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 perhaps underwrite me is one of the ways as you suggest, that we could make the process appear a lot better for the consumer, but until everybody adopts that sort of model, it is still going to be quite a confusing market out there, I think.
2: Yeah, I think, I think at the risk of sending us off on a wild goose chase, there's probably a, a similar analogy with number of underwriting questions and number of critical illness conditions. Right. Not, we're of we're course. not going down that, okay?
1: <laughs> but,
2: but in the same way that your top five critical illness conditions account for 90% of your claims, your top five underwriting questions account for 90% of the risk
0: that mm. you're looking for. Mm. Um,
2: so once you move in any way away from kind of a real kind of facultative IFA model, then actually you can get pretty streamlined processes pretty quickly because, you know, with six or seven underwriting questions and without the risk of anti selection as much, you can do a pretty good job. Um, it's just, again, that it comes back to in IFA world or in a world where you have that price comparison bang in the consumer's face. Right up there, mm-hmm. th- then being that bit out is you know is is commercial suicide at yeah, the moment. Yeah, yeah. So so yeah, I, I I wouldn't give
0: up hope completely. <laughs> <laughs> I, I probably hadn't appreciated that before. You know, it's just it's actually so obvious, but. Guys, if you're out there and you're doing your usual annual trawl through the medical dictionary, looking at what you can add to your critical illness policies next, one of the consequences of adding Uncle Rusty's swamp fever is that you're going to have to ask an underwriting question to find out whether anybody's got a family history of Uncle Rusty's swamp fever or whether anybody's had the symptoms of Uncle Rusty's swamp fever. Gosh, it's, it's never ending, is it? These sorts of things just build and build and build. Yeah. One of the things that we were also talking about in the green room before we hit record. Andrew was whether the protection market will will add even more underwriting complexity in order to try to beat the price down. And one of the things that quite a lot of people are talking about, some positively and some negatively, is postcode underwriting. Have you had much experience with that in your roles at the reinsurance company and at uh, at the insurer, and now in your in your newly launched business?
2: I guess so. Um, so. Having had stuff to do with annuities, it, it's it's always quite interesting. So, you know, for the last four or five years, I've, I've been doing some things with that side of, of the business as well as protection,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and and you know. Obviously, there's a direct link there to, to Underwrite Me and companies like that, where where they, for quite some time, have had a common application yeah. form. Um, and, and I think that's been part of the reason that there's been increased pressure on on the protection side of companies as to why why, why they can't do it there. Um, obviously, there, it's it's pretty usual in some circumstances to use postcode. Um, as, as a pricing factor and other, you know, other things. Um, I, I can only see risk getting more and more segmented. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, with with more and more comparison sites, then it, it only takes one company to, to decide to go down that route that everyone else has to react. So, you know, if whether we, we could spend... A long time, and maybe off the call, we will spend a long time depend, d- debating the merits of using postcode, let's say, as a risk factor. Um, I think what becomes obvious is if if a company came along and you know marketed themselves as a high end company, you know, and, and we're only going to target the uh, good postcodes and kind of aim to pick up the the best in inverted commas, let's say twenty percent of those standard rates lives. Mm-hmm. Which actually equates to what eight million adults in the UK or whatever, then what would everyone else do? That yeah. um, they either then need to put their rates up, um, or they need to join the game as well. Um, and frankly, in in, a, in what's you know an open market and and fair competition and all of that, then then you kind of struggle to see why that wouldn't happen at some point. Um, I think there is a real customer challenge there as to that there are some things that in, that go into underwriting questions or pricing that you would be quite happy to talk about with customers. Mm-hmm. Um, say health questions that that kind of we don't actually use that much at the moment because it's difficult to verify. But things like diet or exercise. Uh-huh. That I actually think, you know, as a customer, it seems surprising that you go through the application process and they haven't really asked me the things that my doctor would ask me. No. Um, whereas obviously, postcode is 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 a, I think at the the other end of the spectrum of being very verifiable, very provable as to you know an actuarial a pricing impact. But you know, is is it is it fair or is it perceived as fair to the customer? I think is is currently what holds people back. But but. Yeah, if you're a disruptive company looking to get into into this market, well, why wouldn't you?
0: I fully appreciate everything you said there, and I think that you're right. If one company does it, everybody else will be almost obliged to do it in order to uh, to keep pushing the rates down and to not lose competitive advantage. What I just hope happens is that nothing's hidden away and that the decisions that people take about what postcodes qualify for what rates don't inadvertently create controversy for the industry. And I'm not going to go into what those postcodes and what those areas might be, but I just think there's a whole minefield of stuff that might go wrong if it isn't thought through. And if we rush into it just because doing postcode underwriting will give us a tiny little bit more margin for a year until everybody catches up and we're all back to square one again, we've just got to make sure that we don't inadvertently set ourselves up for another PR disaster if somebody gets the wrong end of the stick. On something that we might be doing,
2: yeah, I, I, I have a lot of sympathy with that, Roger. I, I guess the plain devil's advocate. I guess the other argument is is if there are people who we know are are at the better end of that seventy five percent of people we give standard rates to, yeah. then then are they currently being charged too much? Uh, and you know, uh, to some extent, that's always happens in pooling and in insurance. So you're mm-hmm. going to have better and worse ends of that spectrum, but you know, in, in a in a um, legal world that we currently live in then then almost can though could those people be saying you're, you're unfairly treating me or, mm-hmm. or whatever i i I, I hope I haven't started a new a whole new company there. I'm <laughs> about to chase those claims, but, but you kind of I think you can ethically argue for it as well as against it as well as commercially.
0: Sure, sure. So thinking about Alia now, you've launched this new business, you've you've come out of corporate life and there's quite a few of us that have done that yes. recently. What are you hoping to offer to the industry on your own? How are you going to effectively fly the underwriting flag going forward, Andrew?
2: Yeah. So, so I guess my, my strap line, tagline, whatever you want to call it, is, is on a mission to make buying life insurance easy. And that kind of comes from nothing more or less than those scraps of paper that emerge after, you know, thoughts that pop into your head at different points through, through, through time off. Mm-hmm. Um, and going, well, wherever I'm thinking, whether that's customers, whether it's charities, whether it's advisors, new distributors, insurers, um, that's the thing that excites me. And I think that's the key thing that, The key thing that I can help make a positive change in the industry, you know, I I will very happily chat over a beer with someone about how we could market things better and and all of that. But if I look at my my knowledge, my expertise um, and my passion, then then to me, I can make a positive difference there. And I guess my my challenge and my hypothesis for setting up in this way is that I can make more of a difference as a consultant than I could as head of underwriting at a reinsurer in that way, where I was a bit detached from it, um, where things had to go a long way through the chain to actually happen. I'll find out whether I'm right or wrong in that area, <laughs> um, and, and, and hopefully so will you and many others. But I really think that that there is that need um, and that it would make a positive difference.
0: What's the one big idea that you'd like those people who are listening to the Empath podcast today to take away from the experiences you've had as an insurer, a reinsurer, and now a consultant?
2: I think it's that, um, that still... Not enough things get built starting at the customer, mm. starting with the customer in mind. So, so yes, we have the acronyms and we kind of have the safety nets around the acronyms given to us, whether it's TCF or, you know, in my world, DDA, Disability Discrimination Act or whatever. So we're familiar with those and we know how to, to do the right thing by customer, but it's not, there still aren't enough things that are truly led by customer need and customer journey so, so whether that's what they really need in terms of product or whether it's what they really need in terms of what's about to happen you know I, i'm now going to ask you underwriting questions that will last two minutes or half an hour or i'm now going to get your medical records and that will take six weeks or two you know what are the different things that will make a difference to that customer at that point mm-hmm. um which a lot you know which we may think we know but but still there's not enough um there's too many conversations that start I guess being honest between insurers and reinsurers and then we pop out to the customer to verify our thinking.
0: Absolutely because I think that if you ask most of the men in the street whether they would like to buy an insurance policy that covered Uncle Rusty's swamp fever <laughs> most of them would just be happy with one that covers cancer stroke and heart attack.
2: Yes yes and, and I think again it's that well, yeah, what are you worried about happening to you and um, And I I think you're right, but not second guessing it too much. You know, is it what are those first words that they say that that would impact them? And and almost is it medical conditions at all? Or is it something about time off work or time in hospital or, you know, a cost impact or something? But, yeah, speaking, uh, listening, and, and people who are making decisions at insurers and reinsurers, listening.
0: Listening is one of the most powerful words in the English language and one of the things that we do very little of in the financial services industry, I think.
2: A- agreed, agreed. And I think, you know, for me, I go back to protect, those protection review sessions and, and that even even for me, you know, being honest, even the heartbeat racing faster when an IFA, you know, not, not even a real person, dare I say <laughs> rather <laughs> than <to> <laughs> a real customer. Um stands up and you don't know what they're going to say and they might say I had this awful underwriting decision and you did this that and the other and it's nice to feel that kind of oh god and that accountability that mm-hmm. comes with that is a lot more than kind of you know someone in internal audit coming and checking if you've made some good decisions that year um, so, so more of that please
0: yeah Andrew I agree listening is one of the things that we need to do more of and it's not just pretending to listen it's actually listening to what people say and basing a lot of our commercial decisions on what those people are saying. It's been really fascinating to talk to you about uh, underwriting today, Andrew, to talk about your new business, Alia, and to and to think about some of the challenges that we face as an industry to engage with our customers more and to try to make them understand protection more and perhaps to to streamline this this process we call underwriting, but to a lot of people is just something bizarre and 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 out of reach. Before we go, Andrew, I always like to finish the Empath podcast with a quick fire round of business questions. So let's get straight into that. If there was one thing that you'd like to change about the financial services industry, perhaps by waving a magic wand, what would it be?
2: I guess being more positive would probably be my overall aim. And and not having listened back to my answers, I'm not sure if I've fulfilled this or not. But stop talking gaps. Stop talking protection gaps. Start talking positively about the successes that are out there. Whether that's Claim stories, whether that's who is insured. I, I guess I don't know how many people don't have an iPhone, but I know how many people don't have protection. So, so tell, me, tell me something that's normal about people getting protection.
0: What's the one business model, or it could be a product or a campaign that's caught your attention in the last year? Tell us what it was and what you liked about it.
2: Um, so if I can kind of do... Too quickly. One, one very close to my world is is vitality yep. and some of the stuff they're doing there, and and being open about talking about health, energising the marketing. So, so more thinking there about a slightly different approach to to getting people, you know, on on risk. Um, and then maybe from from my time off and in gardening these this summer, the, the most inspirational podcast I heard was was one of yours, Roger, with um, with Holly from Boring Money, and and some really interesting stuff there about. Different ways you can talk to consumers, um, you know. So, I guess they're the inspiration that, that when my dad proof read my website, he 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 didn't like it because it wasn't insurancey <laughs> enough. Um, and, and people like Holly and others out there, yourself and, and and many others, kind of I think give people the confidence, give give new starters the confidence that it's okay to 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 be yourself um, and, and and not to uh, put on that horrible voice that we sometimes feel the need to
0: absolutely right like you talk that's what i always say tell us about an app or a gadget that's made a huge difference to your working life
2: um, I guess two common ones, but but the two that when I've woken at three AM in the last two weeks, <laughs> I, I I've looked at have been Twitter and LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um so so my mobile phone is now outside my bedroom. Um but I think I think the power of those to connect with people, both both in a positive getting your message out their way, but also in a you know, when you become self employed and, and and actually it's just quite nice to have a chat sometimes um for for someone like me. And and so I think think those two would be the the big ones for me
0: what's the best business book you've ever read tell us why you like it so much and what you took from it
2: again rewriting the question as underwriters hate (laughs) um, in in, in the last in the last few months my two favorites are um on on a big kind of economics thing i've really enjoyed post-capitalism by paul mason right um which is kind of what happens when capitalism goes wrong um linked to business, some really interesting stuff in there about social enterprises and, and, and actually in an insurance sense you begin to see some stuff like insurance overseas happening which, which may be some interesting things um, and the other again is one, a plug from Bruce Williams' Quiet Room on, on on your podcast earlier, Made to Stick by Chip and Dan Heath, um, mm-hmm. all about great storytelling and again you know, thinking of ways as an underwriter, as someone who can be seen as an enemy of the sales process how how we need to explain and get out there that book's been fantastic for that
0: storytelling and underwriting that is a a powerful combination that hardly anybody ever uses andrew i'm sure there's going to be a lot of people are going to want to get in touch with you after hearing you today on the podcast maybe they want some consultancy maybe they want some underwriting training maybe they just want to have a chat about the way that the underwriting uh process works what's the best way that people should connect with you
2: so i think i'm on i'm on most social media by now um, so to run through them twitter is at andrew wibberley i will let let them look at your website rather than spelling out my name <laughs> at the, restaurant. the website is www.alearisk.com so that's a l e a risk.com um, and my email is andrew at alia
0: fantastic all of those links will be in the show notes page for this podcast which you'll find at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash mpaf that's rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash mpaf andrew once again thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today it's been fascinating to talk to you good luck with alia risk in the future and let's catch up for a beer in london sometime soon
2: thank you very much Roger. look forward to it
1: Listening to the Marketing Protection and Finance Podcast. Do please look at the show notes at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash mpaf for links to the apps and topics and books we discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Simply visit rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash iTunes and leave a review. If you are a provider or advisor or journalist and you have a product, campaign or business model you'd like to talk about, please get in touch. You can be the next guest on the show. And do remember, nothing we talk about on the show is financial advice of any kind. It's all just thoughts and opinions, okay?